This is Conquering Columbus. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, and this is episode 288 of the show. And on this episode, we're talking with Brian Billingsley, co-founder of Basis Theory, a tokenization API that helps software companies secure their clients' data. At the beginning of the interview, we talked with Brian about his journey to co-founding Basis Theory, including some time spent living and working in Sweden. It's a long story, but the 30-second the version is my wife was on bed rest for six months with our third. Thank God everything worked out. She was born premature but healthy. Right when everything started to get normal again, I came home and was like, hey, what do you think about moving to Sweden for six months? <laughs> Later, we talk about the problem Brian kept running into that led to the creation of Basis Theory. As we started talking, we realized what's the problem that we've run into over and over again in our careers. And the thing that kept coming up was this data vault, this token vault that we've had to build inside of our companies multiple times. It was this super important, necessary evil that we all needed, but it was kind of a pain. You had to spend a lot of money, a lot of compliance on it, but you can never externalize that product, add value externally for your customers. It was just a necessary evil. Since we've all experienced that pain, let's focus our effort on that. We wrap up talking about the importance of hiring a diverse team and how hiring developers from all over the world has helped Basis Theory become an internationally viable product right from the start. When we uh, found these folks and hired them, one of their pushbacks was, well, I don't really know fintech and I don't speak, like I speak English, but it's not great. I'm like, that's actually perfect. Like our product has to be global. The companies are gonna be using this have to be able to use it anywhere in the world. So let's let code be our language and not get sucked into just hiring Americans or just hiring uh, English speakers as their mother tongue. And it's worked out really, really well. And the product is really has international flavor and, and usability right out of the gate. As always, we hope you enjoy this interview, and thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I am your co-host, Mike. We got Tim and Josh in the booth. Guys, what's going on? Not much, man. Tim, how are you? Doing all right. I'm cold. I just got back in town, and it's cold. You got to talk about weather on an Ohio. Were you, right. you were in LA? I was, I was in LA first, and then Las Vegas, which was like clear skies in 75 every day for an, for an entire week. So Southern California just does have some of the best weather in the world. I understand really why people it. leave Ohio when it's weather-related, mm -hmm. but then you have to pay to be there, and then mm -hmm. they come right on back. Man, I am impressed that neither of you cracked a joke. We touched on Southern California. We don't even need to. You're going to say it in 10 seconds. You're yeah. literally <laughs> blowing at the seams. To say that you're from San Diego, California. Nope. I'm just, I feel like that's been me. off the podcast for a while now. I don't, if any new listeners, you know, we got to we gotta fill them in where Yo, you're from. So Andy has collected a a smattering of quotes from every time you guys have said something <laughs> about it. And we're going to throw it into like that episode 300 we talked about doing once. But nice. we're, we're on a sidetrack here. There's been times, Brian, so we haven't even introduced yet, but I'm just going to throw this out. There's been times where people have met Mike and they've learned he's from San Diego before they knew what his first name was. That's not even, that's just not even true. I'm uh, just telling you what that happened. That's patently false. Hi, I'm San Diego and I'm from Mike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. With that, maybe we should introduce our guest. Today on the show, we've got Brian Billingsley joining us. He's the co-founder at Basis Theory, a tokenization API to help secure any data you might have. Basis Theory helps developers build secure and compliant applications faster and helps clients secure data such as credit card information, HIPAA-related data, credentials, banking information, and more. We're really excited mm -hmm. to talk with Brian about how he and his team came together to create Basis Theory, what it actually means to tokenize your data, and what the future holds for him and his team. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Brian. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and Brian, before you guys were here, Brian was giving me the tokenization for dummies rundown, so I feel a little more prepared now that I've had this conversation. But uh, one of the first places we like to start, Brian, is just a little background on yourself, your story, kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure, absolutely. Um, so 
I've been a Columbus native most of my life. So I'm from Columbus, not San Diego. Um, and I've been in the payment space really out of the gate. I wish I had an awesome story how I, how I landed in payments, but it was really totally happenstance. Um, a professor at Ohio University recommended me for a, uh, a role at this, at this boutique firm out of school that was located in Dublin called Ecom Advisors. And I just got thrown into the deep end. I had no idea what I was doing. Like I had to, I was presenting to clients and Googling what the hell um, I was supposed to be presenting on. I got to learn really quick. So uh, we ended up getting acquired a few years later by a company called FIS when Metavante and Fidelity were smashing, smashing together. So I went from this little boutique firm to part of this strategy group for a 30,000 person company and learned a lot. But one of the key things I learned was I never wanted to work in a company that big again, unless, you know, I was getting acquired for a year and then out of there. So was there for a while and got recruited away to Alliance Data Systems, which is here in Columbus, uh, mostly in the card services group. And uh, then at that time, I had some ideas, something I wanted to start. And I actually got to uh, meet Chris Olson and Drive Capital. Told him some of my ideas. He's like, yeah, you need to talk to Klarna. And I was like, why in the world would I talk to a Swedish invoice company? That doesn't make much sense. Hmm. And um, actually met the co- He's like, just trust me. So I, I met the co-founders, flew over to Sweden. Before you know it, uh, was moving my three kids under five and my wife there for six months. And then came back to Columbus, uh, launched offices in New York, Columbus and San Francisco, and launched Klarna in the U.S. market. Did that for three years, took a break, uh, was at a um, payments orchestration company for a couple of years called Moto. And then that really gave me the idea of what I want to do, uh, what, what we're doing now at Basis Theory. So I walked in here talking about how stressed I was because I have people <clears throat> at my house doing things for me. I'm not even doing the work and you moved your whole family to Sweden. We did. I literally, I mean, it, it's a long story, but the 30-second the version is my wife was on bed rest for six months with our third. Thank God everything worked out. She was born premature but healthy. Right when everything started to get normal again, I came home and was like, hey, what do you think about moving to Sweden for six months? <laughs> I'm sure that went well. It, it, she was just like, really? Like, yeah, really. Um, but it was good. And, and if you don't mind me peeling back the layer on that conversation with yeah. Chris, you talked about, you sat down and he said, you need to talk with Klarna. Yep. What was what was your idea? And when you went over there, why did things click so well where they said, hey, you're the one who's going to go launch uh, all these new areas? Good question. I, I mean, it was really around because uh, I, I got to know credit really well. Alliance Data does a great job with consumer credit. And really, it was how do you get customers to use credit, like honestly, when they don't really need it. And that, that kind of sounds bad, but it's like, how do you get someone who's buying $80 worth of clothes at Victoria's Secret to you, to open a credit card? And Alliance Data crushed it uh, for so many years where they figured out how to enmesh themselves in the brand and leverage loyalty to get people to open up these new accounts. And um, I've, I thought, you know, and Alliance Data does a lot of things great, but a lot of their value is in store and, you know, everything was moving online. That was 2013. Uh, e-commerce was just completely taking off. Platforms like Shopify and Big Commerce were really coming into the forefront. And I said, what's the going to be the next generation private label card for the internet? And that's where I was talking to Chris about it. He's like, you really need to talk to Klarna. And so I, I met, I've actually flew to New York first, met one of the co-founders, and then they just flew me to, uh, to Sweden. And it was hilarious. I just get off the plane. I'm like, totally jet lagged. And they're like, I'll just come in. It's, it's low key. We're, it's going to be cool. We're just meeting a few people. I get there and there's like eight one-hour meetings with a logic test right in the middle. I'm <laughs> like, man, I'm toast. But it worked out um, and it was a great run there. Could you talk even more detail about what Klarna does and what your focus was to launch those regions? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Klarna is a super unique company where it, it really combines payments and banking and credit all to make a really seamless product for the consumer. And so it was, uh, for me, it was actually launching really a whole wholly owned subsidiary based on what we needed. So it was hiring 
legal compliance, privacy, customer service, product engineering, all here in the U.S., primarily for time difference reasons, also for uh, legal and compliance reasons. We had to do certain things here as opposed to doing it across the pond. And so it was kind of doing all that, helping create the product and making it unique for the U.S. market. Something that's really fascinating about credit is it's a, it's a hyper-local product. Um, consumers, even like in Europe, the, the difference in credit products between Germany and Sweden is actually drastically different what those consumers expect. And it's the same thing here in the U.S. Consumers expect a certain experience at certain rates and it, it's really easy for companies to come in and say hey like it worked in sweden it, it's going to work here right and that only goes so far you really need to make the product perfect for that local consumer that was a big part of my job why do you think that is is it just historically like how things have built up over time or is there something larger work there it, it credits fascinating and it really like so much of it is culture actually it's uh, regional expectations it's regional legislation and compliance so super interesting how those are combined i mean for example in sweden like people are like they don't want credit cards but they want credit like basically on paper when you do surveys they want a credit card they just don't want a credit card they just want a, a digital version of it so super interesting there's a lot of rules and regulations and compliance you got to follow as well to not get thrown in jail. And How did you like living in Sweden though? I mean, we can talk about the credit ama all day. Amazing. Um, it's I mean, beautiful, right? Beautiful. Like we moved there and one of the most fascinating things to me is we were so far north. We moved there in March. It's still pretty dark there for mm -hmm. most of the day. Mm -hmm. And just seeing people change and, and go from wearing black to colors as, as it went from like March, April and May and just the blooms came out. It was fascinating. And the other thing, we were actually there during an election cycle and I have to say, like, it was really interesting being in a country that has, that does things differently. Like, two quick things. They have multiple parties, not just two. Mm -hmm. And it makes uh, parties and people that have very different ideologies actually work together in a really good way. Like, you'll have the feminist party, the green party, which is big on environmental stuff, and, like, the real pro-business, what you think of more like right Republicans or something. And because there's like 12 different parties, if they want to actually get anything done, they have to work together. So if there's a business initiative that's good for women and good for business and good for the environment, like stuff actually gets done. And the other thing that's cool is they have caps on how much you can spend on ads. So it's just, mm -hmm. just very straightforward. This is my, this is my platform. This is why you should vote for me. Not a bunch of like, here's why the other person's a jackass. Yeah. It was just really refreshing. What city were you in when you were there? Stockholm. Okay. The other thing, the parks are bananas. Like they don't have lawsuits like we do here. And the first time I took my kids to a park, I'm like, they're going to kill themselves here. <laughs> and they were like jumping on lily pads five feet off the ground. And they just like, that's what kids do. And if you fall and break an arm, you fall and break your arm. I'm like, tough. <laughs> Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. We do want to talk about basis theory yeah, at yeah. some point, so we'll talk a little bit about So what... What was the idea initially and sure. who did you gather to help you build this thing? Sure. So after um, Moto Payments, which was in between Klarna and what we're doing now, um, I started talking with two really great friends in the industry that I've known for a long time. Uh, the first one's Colin Luce out in the Bay Area and Ben Milne, who's the founder and, and CEO of Dwala. As we started talking, we realized what what's the one, the problem that we've run into over and over again in our careers. And 
the thing that kept coming up was this data vault, this token vault that we've had to build inside of our companies multiple times. It was this super important, necessary evil that we all needed, but it was kind of a pain. You had to spend a lot of money, a lot of compliance on it, but you can never externalize that product, essentially, add value externally for your customers. It was just a necessary evil. And so like, that's something, since we've all had experienced that pain, let's focus our effort on that. And that's really where it started, was how do we democratize access to payments data? We all come from the payment space. So that's really where it started. But then we jumped in and hired some amazing engineers, amazing product people, and really started talking to investors in the market, most importantly. And what we realized is payments was a slice of it, but there was a bigger opportunity to secure the world's data at rest. Um, and we were we kept using this analogy of like Cloudflare, like helping you know with HTTPS, like how do you secure data in transit? That's been mostly solved, but there's petabytes of data just sitting in databases unencrypted. And like, that's the new forefront is how do you secure that data at rest, but also make it really usable. So that's really was the catalyst of our idea. For somebody super ignorant about this space, what do you mean when you say democratize payment processing? Is that the word that you use? Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So payments data one, it's highly regulated. There are rules. There's just talk about credit cards for a minute and then we can expand. So if you're using your credit cards, you have to have a certain level of compliance and certifications to have to touch that data. And so the way that processors have solved that is say, hey, we will um, we'll tokenize your data for you. So we'll give you this secure tunnel, an iframe or something on your website. And when Brian Billingsley types his card in, that card number is going straight to Stripe or straight to Braintree. And they're holding that data safely, they've passed all the compliance checks, and then they'll hand you back the merchant or the person processing a card, a token. So you don't have my 16-digit number, you just have this string of gobbledygook, and you can store that in your system and know that, hey, whenever you, Brian Billingsley comes back, you just use the string and send it to Stripe, and they'll process it for you, and they'll know, oh, that's Brian's card, which solved a ton of problems in the industry, especially reducing the amount of compliance and oversight that the merchants had to do and made it super easy. The problem is you're really locked in. So once you start using a processor and they're, you're using their tokens, as soon as you go to them and say, hey, we would love a better rate or we want to add a different processor, we actually want to switch processors. We got a great rate with company XYZ over here. They're like, well, tough. <laughs> um, and like, I would say Stripe is the best at it. They'll say, well, here's an API. You can do it if you want. All the way to we've seen merchants have to pay millions of dollars to get their tokens out of one processor to another. So we said there should be a company that we can give the business value to you as the merchant, like you own that card data, but you don't have to do any of the compliance overhead. And that's really just for payments. And we do that for all types of data, but that's the real job to be done in payments is to allow merchants to say, I want the business value, like I'm spending $100,000 a month with people and technology to own my own vault. And some merchants do, like Microsoft and Amazon, the biggest of the big have their own for those reasons. They want that redundancy. They want to be able to have the best price negotiation leverage that they possibly can. But if you're, you know, you're a multi-million dollar merchant, you, you just don't have those time or resources or effort to do that. And that's what we want to give through a simple API. So as you went to the table and you said, hey, I, I want to do this and I want to democratize this, how did you think you were going to pull it off? And I know you guys have, have evolved compared to what you're doing today, but I'm still curious about the original idea. Well, how did you think and why did you think that you could pull it off without having them expend all those resources? Without having the merchants expend the resources? Yeah. The main thing is how did we how do we create a, one, a, a very engineering first um, 
API that allows them to one quickly see like how easy it is to integrate. I mean, that's we want someone, an engineer, to hit our site and within five minutes be like, I get how this works. I you know I see what I need to do, and then just make it really easy to not only put data in, but we have these concepts to kind of get into the weeds now. But we serverless functions, we call them reactors. So not only can you put data safely in, but you can actually we'll send the data to the destination for you whether it's Stripe or Braintree or whatever, so you don't have to worry about that either. So we've kind of built it so it's it's stupid proof, uh, so to speak, but in a way where an engineer, where they want to add value can absolutely, whether it's making uh, it a beautiful front end, super flexible and customized on the front end, or adding routing logic or whatever, if you want to get really creative on where you're sending those transactions, you can kind of do whatever you want. So I uh, this is a side story, but it's relevant. I was trying to close an account for our software company the other day, and they they needed a deal breaker was they needed to store credit card information in the system. Mm-hmm. So I just created a bunch of random fields to put credit card information into, and then that made it back to our engineering team, and then uh, <laughs> things exploded to put lightly <laughs> at that point. Yep. Um, so this situation would allow us to handle situations like that, though. Absolutely. Within a couple hours, you could use our APIs to then actually store that card with us. So from a business perspective, you own that. You can do what you want with it uh, as long as it's compliant. If you wanted to send it to another process or whatever or actually convert off of us someday, but absolutely you would be able to use tokens in your database so you would be completely compliant. Nice, man. We'll close the deal after all. Let's do it. (laughs) So yeah, and the the interesting thing about this is now you start thinking about beyond payment processing data. You get into things like personal health information, protected health information, protected personal information, all those different types of databases that have data that needs to be protected. Now, your product enables those software companies or people to build software companies without having to worry about building this giant engine to feed compliance and all of these other apps. 100%. Yeah, we want companies focused on using your domain expertise to create amazing user experiences and that solve like you know amazing value for end users. And we just want to be the infrastructure that allows you to do that compliant, compliantly and safely. Not dissimilar from a Twilio that just made it super easy to message people mm-hmm. um, securely and privately. Like That's what we want to be is that infrastructure to do that. Have you guys gotten any pushback from the market? Like What has been the biggest hurdle so far? Really the only pushback there, most payments processors, like specifically in payments, I would say most are neutral to, they like what we're doing. It makes it really easy to turn on new volume. There are certain processors who like to do everything and um, don't like anyone messing in their sandbox. And so, you know, we've received a little pushback there, but overall, I mean, I think the market's very you know, open to what we're doing and it helps that we're not just payments. So if we're working with a, a merchant, they're tokenizing PII, they're tokenizing bill to ship to demographic information. So when they're saying, hey, we want to store all of our information, you know, it's a it's tough for, you know, anyone to say, well, you can store everything but our payments tokens in that vault that usually doesn't fly. And most of our customers are big enough where they have enough leverage on their own where we really don't have to, you know, they're much bigger than we are right now. Yeah. So who are you selling to? Is it are you selling directly to developers? Are you selling to, you know, founders, entrepreneurs? Like what who do you target? Now, great question. So the direct sales efforts are definitely on fintechs, you know, medium and large enterprise merchants, um, and 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 biller companies. There's actually a great opportunity for us um, because of some new rules that Notcha made. Notch is the the rules body that governs the ACH network that moves money between banks. Um, they just put a rule and it says if you do more than 6 million transactions this year and 2 million transactions next year, you have to store that data encrypted at rest, which you didn't have to before. So big billers, insurance companies are, 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 are great prospects and customers of ours. So those are the ones we're mainly targeting, but we're definitely taking a 
dev first approach. So while we've got enterprise sales efforts going with the big companies, we also want to get involved in .NET communities and Java, Java communities and like let people when they're building things for fun on their own time to see how they can easily secure their data from the ground up. And then you start to see the groundswell of, hey, I was I saw this at a cool meetup. I think that actually solves a need in my you know mm-hmm. day job at Chase or at Nationwide or what have you. Um, so we're tr- really trying to take uh, both a top-down enterprise sales approach as well as a ground up and just put the tools in the hands of the developers. And anyone can go to basistheory.com and use the entire product for free. There's no paywalls. You can access the full API. You can actually turn it on and do, I think, 50 tokens for completely free. So we want to make it completely accessible for anyone to use. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. Did encrypting the data at rest come about as a result of your guys' own personal need to help the people that were using your original product, or am I totally off on that? No, you mean like at a prior company's? No, I was talking about at this company, but if the right answer is prior company, I want to go with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was totally really, that, that's what we had. That's what we were having to do is store, like whether it's um, biller data, card data. I mean, that was a big part of it. And we've actually, though, it's like because you said that, I mean, we've dog fooded a lot of our own stuff. So, even the way that we uh, roll keys and manage our KMS for managing encryption keys, um, we've actually added that in our API. So if you're a large company, you say, hey, I love the infrastructure, but you know I've got my CISO wants to roll their own keys or do their own KMS or they have their own KMS policies, go for it. Like You can roll your own keys and then basis theory can't even encrypt your data. So there are several things in our product that we solved and that we added into the product to meet our own needs first since we want to be the first customer of our product every single time. Because I think what I was thinking, I'm probably just still not fully understanding the value chain. I was thinking that you would say, okay, uh, we'll give you the ability to uh, encrypt this data and then you store it with basis theory. And then when you guys have all this data sitting there, like you guys would have to find whether that data is at rest, you guys had to find a way to encrypt it. So that's why I thought that's sure. And that, that you're not wrong. Like we've had, we've worked nice. on. Ways I knew to, if I asked it enough times. Yeah, I'd be yeah. Right. We're not. Nice. We've had to um, figure out how to keep that data safe and and you know use. We've got some amazing uh, engineers and cryptographers on staff that help us keep that data safe. Yeah. Absolutely. So basis theory is basically like a big bank of data. Yeah, and basically. You guys send out tokens to everybody to tell them, yep, they have the, this is the right data. That's right. And everybody goes home happy. That's and this right. is not a division of Klarna. Klarna was like it's on not. the way. Yeah, yeah it's a, exactly. Yeah. Completely separate. So what are the big initiatives you guys are working on now? Because it sounds like the product's in a pretty good place at this point. It I is. mean, other than developing the API further to you know, allow it to connect better with other products, like what, do you, what are your big initiatives right now? Yeah, I mean, big sales initiative right now. So that's that's really number one, getting it in the hands of, of more and more customers. Two, I mean, it's always, you know, it's so, you know, I can sit here and, you know, tell you how awesome we are, but I think it's so important to think of the customer and actually put the problem in the words of the customer. And so we've recently hired some great hires that are helping us do that because so we don't sit in, in our own echo chamber and tell people how awesome we are. No, like the someone who actually has the problem needs to hear what in, they need to hear the words, whether it's online or in a LinkedIn ad or in a in a podcast, and say, "Yeah, that solves my problem." And so that's a big focus of ours right now, um, not to you know drink our own Kool Aid, but to really make sure that we're solving real problems and that we're doing it easily in a way that engineers like and feel like that they're not having to create a bunch of boilerplate code, um, but it's all it doesn't hinder their ability to be creative either. So that's really important for us. 
and then hiring. I mean, like I'm sure every startup that sits in this chair is talks about hiring, but hiring is so important and we're, we'll be hiring at least a dozen more engineers over the next month, as well as product and marketing and design, et cetera. So what else outside of hiring is the future look like for you guys? Like if you look out the next six to 12 months, I don't know how far out you guys are planning. Yep. No, great question. I mean, really, so from a product perspective, a big focus is actually internationalization, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure that, because we've already got clients that will be launching in Europe and Asia, uh, making sure that we're dealing with things like GDPR and PSD2 effectively and uh, able to comply in markets like Germany and Sweden and Norway and other European markets that have really unique uh, requirements on where that data sits. So that's a big one. Um, two is making sure that the, what we call our elements, the front end um, user experience, that if you want to ingest data and never touch it, so you can tell a uh, you know, tell someone that we legitimately never touch that data, uh, but we can actually use it is a, the product, the front end product uh, we call elements. So we can ingest any data. So not just payments data or bank data, but if you wanted, if a prop tech company wanted to use it to take in a picture of a driver's license or a social security number, or any document that you say we will need or someone in the value chain will need, but we don't want to touch or be responsible for, we want to be able to do that. So that's a big focus of ours. And then making the product easier and easier to use. I mean, where we, you know, we think of the world in three buckets of data, data that you have to by law or you get thrown in jail or fine. There's data that is moving from nice to have to now you have to. And we're doing really, really well in those two buckets of data. We see a world though where everything's encrypted. And, and honestly, like engineers have a ton on their plate, like creating a value prop where you're asking them to encrypt data and keep data safe when they don't have to is a challenge. And really it comes to how do you make a, super elegant product that is super easy to use. And, you know, hopefully we can get it down to just changing a tag in a field. So that's a big challenge. It's an engineering challenge for us to make it that easy to make any data safe. What about the size of the company? Yeah, we are about 17 people, mostly engineers. We've got folks in Columbus, Des Moines, California, Colorado, Pittsburgh, uh, Cleveland. San Diego. Uh, Yeah, no San Diego. Actually, we did. Our head of security that'll be joining, our CISO is joining from San Diego. Top quality in the world. Top quality. He's got to be good, right? Yeah, Um, I mean, you know, only the best come from San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) And then we actually have three engineers in Brazil. uh, And we found the South American market to be incredible. Uh, The talent there is is amazing. So we we will continue to hire uh, in Brazil as well. Yeah, our company is, was headquartered and founded out of South Africa, and our development team is some of the smartest people. Uh, I mean, not that I'm super versed in development, but you can just sit in a room with people and catch on pretty quickly. They're crazy intelligent. Yeah, and we purposely, um, you know, it was great. We, you know, we when we uh, found these folks and hired them, one of their the their pushbacks was, well, I don't really know fintech, and I don't speak, like, I speak English, but it's not great. I'm like, that's actually perfect. Like, our product has to be global. You know, the companies that are going to be using this have to be able to use it anywhere in the world. So let's let code be our language and not get sucked into just hiring Americans or just hiring uh, English speakers as their mother tongue. And it's worked out really, really well. Um, the product is really has international flavor and, and usability right out of the gate. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies. 
companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. Have you guys caught a lot of attention from from some of the big players out there? Like, what what is the hype and the energy like right now? You mean from like competitors or just in general? Like, what's let's the... say maybe from like uh, investment standpoint, just like yeah, people yeah. who want to be involved with the company and all those different aspects. No, absolutely. So the mark, I mean, the market's really interesting right now, um, and we've we've kept a pretty low profile on purpose so far, but we've just had some amazing support. So our seed, Kindred Ventures, led it, Kanye and Steve out on the West Coast. And Offline Ventures was also a big part of that as well as Box Group and then some amazing angels. So just by, you know, having a, an incredible night. And we purposely actually worked with them instead of just purely fintech. We have a pretty robust fintech network between the three of us, but purposely went with some seed investors who really, you know, Steve, and Steve was uh, really early at Uber, for example. So how, how do you think about the world at that scale, you know, offline with um, Steve and Britt Moore and, you know, early at Facebook, early at early at Apple, Brits, you know, did Britain coach. So she has an amazing consumer perspective, especially when it comes to women. And then James Higa was, was, um, you know, one of Steve Jobs' right-hand guys for 15 years and just hearing his perspective on, on the market. And like, it was really interesting when he saw our product, he immediately went to, he's like, you guys are going to be the next version of HTTPS. And we said like, cool, what do you mean? Hmm. And, and he said, well, you know, like when you go to a website and a cert's expired or it says this isn't, you know, secure, most people will browse away. You, you don't see on the website. He said in five to 10 years, you know, there's going to be something similar to that, whether it's a brand or a logo or something, I don't know, that says, hey, once you hit this site, okay, data in transit safe. But once you give this merchant, give this company your data, what are they doing with it? How do they keep it safe? Who are they sharing it with? Um, can you retract that information as a, as a consumer um, and see where it goes? So like that was just hearing his perspective of, you know, Apple scale is super helpful because a lot of times we're focused, you know, like hiring the next engineer, like pushing the next release and and he kind of brings us up a level. So that's been great um, from an investment perspective. Um, definitely a lot of the big Players in the industry are paying attention, having conversations with lots of the big payments processors, the big data companies for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good place to kind of head towards our last question of the show, unless you guys have anything left. I see some shaking heads. So, Brian, the, the question we have to end the show is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. Mm. And without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for a show about entrepreneurs, business leaders, and the like, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? I mean, <laughs> I didn't I didn't know I was going to get asked that, but I feel like that's how I live almost every day. Um, I feel like living uncomfortably is just something um, that I can't not do even when I wanted to. I mean, ever since I've always taken jobs that were a stretch, the Klarna job was an incredible stretch that uh, was a big jump for me. Like I said, moving moving the family on the spur of the moment. You know, we on the personal side, we just bought a 100-acre farm. In the middle of starting a company, we bought a 100-acre farm that we're kind of turning from a Monsanto mess into like an organic uh, an organic farm and kind of redoing um, the land there to make it a lot healthier. So I feel like that's where I'm, for me personally, that's where I'm always thriving is when I'm, st when I'm stretching myself where something doesn't feel comfortable, where I'm feeling like I'm a little out over my skis, um, I think that's just a super important place to be. 
uh, but also knowing that you've got a great team and, and that you are remaining overall balanced. But I think that's how you stretch yourself and that's how you make yourself better when you do live uncomfortably. One final question for me, I, I lied. Um, well, I'm just curious because you seem very like calm and like a, a chill individual. Normally someone at your level, you know, it's achieved that level of success. I mean, they just there's a different vibe to them, right? But uh, I feel like you'd be on a surfboard, you know, and just kind of relax. So what motivates you is what I'm getting at. Like, are you driven really by the titles and by money or is it you just like the journey? You like you like the hard work, you like the challenges? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, titles, I call me whatever you want. I don't really care. <laughs> don't really care about titles. I know some do. I mean, for me, it's really making meaningful change, both in, with the product that the product that I'm working on, or especially the people that I work with. I'm a huge people person, uh, meaning that I love. I, I used to think. I actually it used to drive me nuts. Like I remember sitting at Clarendon real and like my head of product, incredible. And even at today, I mean, Basis Theory, like my head of product, incredible. My VP of engineering at, at Basis Theory, incredible just world-class talent. And I'm like, my only world-class talent is to get world-class talented people to work together in a really good way and know a little bit about payments and, and data and how that works. And I used to get really frustrated by that, but now I've really kind of gravitated that as a strength where when you can help facilitate highly competent, highly committed individuals to work together in a good way, that's actually a big strength. Probably one of the most underrated talents, getting hiring people that are smarter than you and letting them do their jobs. And that's that's the important thing though is to actually let them do their jobs. Mm -hmm. And like I've, you know, we everyone manages a little different. I like to say I have a very wide funnel when it comes to I let you do you, where I definitely start to get a lot more focused is when it start we start delivering a product to a customer, that's where I'll, I'll become a little bit more of a, of a pain. But yeah, I really like to see if you're good at what you do, I let you do you and just put a great product in front of the customer. Has that never caused you doubt? Because like, I think I've found strengths before that you look back on it, it seems super easy to you, right? And then you start to think like, that can't even be like, can't make me valuable. I can't be a strength. Mm -hmm. uh, have you? Did you ever feel like that with your skill set of like- 100%. Yeah, so that's, I don't know if that's imposter syndrome or what that necessarily is, but um. it's a little bit of both. I mean, in my world, like I, I'm, a, I'm technical enough to be dangerous, but I'm in no means an engineer. And when you work around incredible technical talent that are, you know, can build um, or product people that can put together an amazing product roadmap and ingest data from customers and really put it in bite-sized pieces for the engineering team, like it does feel, it feels like they have a very tangible tactical mm -hmm. skill. And, you know, a lot of times when I work, you know, when I'm working on stuff, it's like two week time frames all the way up to multi-year time frames, especially when I was at Klarna. I mean, you're thinking 12, 18 months out and that can get frustrating. And actually something that I found is having that, it sounds as goofy as it sounds like the farm, being able to go out and like cut up a tree with a chainsaw or something like that, where you can do something, execute it, check it off the list. It really is a healthy balance for me. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. It can feel like imposter syndrome when it's like, it's a little bit more uh, ethereal, like, what am I really helping? But at the end of the day, like, when you have people come to you and say, hey, it actually just happened today, I talked with a former colleague at Klarna, um, who's now doing some amazing things at different companies, and he was basically like, hey, because of how you led, um, you know, how you interacted with me, how you seemed like it was an even playing field, and you were, like, there rolling up your sleeves with us, like, it changed the way that I worked and what I'm doing now, and, like, just hearing that's worth everything. Something I've learned in the creative space, because a lot of times when you're working with people that have the technical skill, it's like very easy to understand it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason why a story succeeds or why something that looks 
you can do the same thing and one can fail and one can win yep. in the creative space. And it's like cheesy, but I call them dumb moments. Yep. And for me, there's things that when I look at it, I instantly go to one direction. Mm-hmm. And when I see other people not take that route, I, it would be frustrating for me. Yep. And I'm like, why would this not be yep. your first goal? And so learning that the way that that to me is a default is the, is the, is the advantage. And rather than being frustrated with people, help them to understand why you take that route. Yep, absolutely. And so it's like, you might not code the thing, but you understand the end goal That's right. and, and the way to do it. And then empowering that person rather than belittling them or being frustrated or that lack of communication, figuring out how to, how to change their, like with sales, I work with sales guys all the yep. time. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, why would you say it that way? It's like very clearly this way, yeah. but not describing it in that way, helping them to see the value in, in your, you know, for example, like the audience is the value versus the platform, right? So just like very small things that to me that are always duh. And then realizing, oh, that's the advantage that I have. So rather than being frustrated or uh, you know trying to look for somebody yeah. that sees that, helping them to understand that so that they operate in that way. And I think that's kind of what you're describing is like, I can't do all these things, but I see the end goal. So let me help you all to like make my masterpiece. I think you said Steve Jobs, he was obviously, he's not a liked guy for a lot of reasons, yep. but he didn't code the computers. He didn't make the anything, right. but he had this vision and an understanding of what people wanted. That's right. And it was such a basic thing. And so many people do it so poorly. And I don't yep. think he should be the only North star there, but I think that's a little bit of what you're talking about. And something I failed at for a long time uh, was like, oh, this little thing is the advantage. Let me help understand why that is the difference maker. I like that, the dumb moments. And actually, I think some one of the, some of the things I do is like all the, the unique viewpoints and like the experts around the table all have their dumb moments. Exactly. How do they all fit together? Bring them all together. Yeah. The engineer has their dumb moment, but then the salesperson's like, yeah, but the engineer's not the one that's writing the check at nationwide Mm -hmm. or at pick your big company. Like it's the procurement person and the GM, not the engineers, even though the engineers have to say that check out, you know, check the boxes and say they like it. So it's getting all those dumb moments together in the right sequence. Yeah. And like what he was saying, I I still have no idea how to do what you're doing. I get the gist of it. But like, if, if you were like, I go implement that, I'd be like, well, we have no chance, but it's understanding those things that seem so simple to you and then like being able to clearly convey that value. So yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad, I'm cool. glad that that's working out. Awesome. Well, Brian, that's a great place to wrap up. Thanks so much for joining us on the show and sharing your story and talk about basis theory. Yeah. Thanks so much. And please check out basis Like we have great dev docs, great guides. So even, I think you can <laughs> check it out. I think you could implement it, uh, within a few minutes. And yeah, any, any Give questions, me too much credit. I would love to, uh, love to talk to you. Thanks so much guys. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. That was Brian Billingsley from Basis Theory. If you enjoyed that episode, leave us a like, hit subscribe on whatever podcast app you are listening on. You'll hear interviews just like this one every week. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.